Hebrews 11, 8 through 22. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Mary. Well, good morning. My name is Mitchell Carter. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. As always, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's word to you this morning. If you notice in your uh, order of worship, we have an outline. Uh, It's not an outline this morning. It's a little bit more of a table. Uh, If you don't like restraints and confinements like a table brings, just flip it over and it's blank on the back and you can take notes there. Uh, But I think a table suits us well this morning and we're going to see that in a minute. We're in Hebrews 11, as Mary just told us, and this is where Jeff began preaching from last week. Um, And there are a lot of things that we could talk about in this passage today. There are a lot of themes uh, that I would love to talk to you about. One huge theme that came up a lot in studying is death. Uh, Death shows up a lot here, and it's something that we don't talk about very often, that we're not hit with in our time and in our culture the way that the rest of the world and the rest of time has been. But we're not going to focus in on death this morning. We could talk about the fact that these are Old Testament saints, uh, that the author is actually making an argument for those who are tempted to return to Judaism, that the fathers and the mothers of their faith are actually looking forward to Christ, that it's not something different, but this is in conformity with the whole trajectory of the Old Testament. But I think that the place where 
we should land this morning and the place where we're going to spend our time is talking about a dichotomy and it's a dichotomy that Jeff introduced last week. It's the dichotomy between things that are seen on the one hand and things that are unseen on the other hand. We saw this in the very first mention of faith in Hebrews 11.1, that faith is the conviction of things not seen. And the very first example we have says in verse three, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, but it was made out of the word of God, which is invisible. And so what, what the author is gonna tell us is that you're always going to have a choice. When it comes to faith, when it comes to your confidence, when it comes to where you are going to put your hope, you're going to have a choice. You're either going to put your trust and your confidence in things that are seen, in your circumstances, those things that hit you in the face every day, or you can put your trust and your confidence in things that are not visible to the eye. And the author tells us that's the word of God, the promises of God, the commands of God, which you don't see, but what he's going to argue is those are the things that are more sure. Those are the things that are more secure. Those are the things where you should place your faith and your hope. So we're going to see both this morning. And we're actually going to look at the text first as it would be seen to an outside observer, as all these stories would be seen to an outside observer. And then second, what these people of faith saw what these people of faith trusted in that they could only see with the eyes of faith that weren't visible to the naked eye. Before we do that though, let's pray God's blessing on our time in his word. Father, you are good. We trust that you are good because you've told us in your word. We trust that you are good because we've experienced your goodness and your grace in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, do what your word promises that it will do, that it will bring life out of death, that it will bring faith when our faith is feeble, and that it will strengthen us to endure and to persevere when the road seems hard. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength of your Holy Spirit to see those things this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. So as I mentioned, we're gonna look at these five stories and the first way that we're gonna walk through them is by looking at the externals, by looking at the circumstances that surrounded them. And I want you to see how silly these heroes of the faith might have seen, seemed to someone watching. The very first thing we see is Abraham in verses eight through nine. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So if you remember back, all the way back in Genesis 12, Abraham didn't originally live in what we now call Israel. He didn't originally live in Canaan. He grew up in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans or Mesopotamia, if you've taken world history. So 
Abraham grew up in this land. He lived in his father's household. This would have been his inheritance. This is what he was set to receive. He was going to raise a family on this land, have this wealth that his father passed on to him. This is how things worked. And in Genesis 12, God shows up and he says, Abraham, leave. Go to a place that I'm going to show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. He just says, don't worry about it. I'll show you. Leave the place where you are. So Abraham has stability. He has things that are known to him. He has security in the land that he's grown up. And he leaves all that behind and follows after the voice of God. On the outside, this looks like a poor decision. This is not some wise advice that a friend would give you. You are giving up things that are sure for things that are unsure. And what we see in verse nine is that even after Abraham gets there, he doesn't possess the land. It says that he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Abraham shows up and there are all these people there. They're Canaanites who live in Canaan. The land belongs to them, not to Abraham. And so he wanders around the land for the rest of his life, living in tents, which you live in and then pick up and walk somewhere else and put back down. There's one little piece of land in Canaan that Abraham got in his lifetime. Do you know what it is? It's his burial plot. When Sarah, his wife died, Abraham goes and he buys a field that has a cave in it and he buries Sarah in the cave. And then when he dies, he is buried there. From the outside, all Abraham gets of this land is the plot that he's buried in. It doesn't seem like a very good decision. The next story we see is the story of Sarah, who's Abraham's wife. Verse 11 says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So there, there are two promises that show up in Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham and Sarah. The promise of land, go to this land that I'm going to show you. And then there's the promise of an offspring that from these two people will come a multitude of nations, as many as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. But there's one complication with that and it's that Sarah is barren. In Genesis 11, Sarah is 65 years old and the text just says that she's barren. She has no children. It does not look like it's from lack of trying. They've tried to have children and have not been able to. But God promises them offspring. If you fast forward to Genesis 16, Sarah is now 76 years old and it looks like they're growing impatient. Again, it looks like they've been trying to obey God and it's not happening. And so Sarah says, maybe this will work. And she offers her servant to Abraham. And Abraham has a child from her servant. And in Genesis 17, we get God's response to that attempt. No, no, no. 
that's not how it works. The promise wasn't just to Abraham. The promise was to Abraham and Sarah. The child of the promise will come from the two of you. It's at this point, Sarah is now 90 years old. And the chapter after Genesis 18 has this little remark along the way. That at this point, at 90 years old, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. If you don't know what that means, ask your mom or ask your wife. It means she can't have children anymore. Physically, she is unable to have children. And God says, no, Sarah will bear a child. And as it turns out, she does. 25 years after the initial promise, Sarah finally has a child. In the last story, we saw Abraham's obedience on the outside. And I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this, but Sarah and Abraham would have had to obey. By all accounts in scripture, they conceived of a child the exact same way that everyone else conceives of a child. And so they would have obeyed when Sarah was 65, when Sarah was 76, when Sarah was 90, after she had become physically incapable of having children. Again, on the outside, this seems crazy. What are you trying to do? And it's not just Sarah. The text in Hebrews has this funny one-liner that Abraham is as good as dead. He's so old, he's 100 at this point, that the text just says, well, he's pretty much dead at this point. (laughs) And through this, Sarah and Abraham trusted God and obeyed. The next story is not really much of a story. It focuses a lot more on internal motivation in verses 13 through 16. All we hear is this. These all, so that's Abraham, Sarah, and then Isaac and Jacob, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So that afar is not distance, that's time. All these people got to the end of their life having heard the promises of God repeated over and over and over to them and they died without having those promises fulfilled. Yes, Sarah and Abraham had a child. They were promised a multitude of nations and they had one kid. Abraham was promised the whole land of Canaan and he gets one field with a cave in it. They died not having received the promises. This looks like failure. The next story is one that's well known to many people. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham finally gets Isaac, uh, this child of the promise. And when Isaac is, uh, it looks like about a teenager, Abraham wakes up one day and God says, hey, Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice Isaac. I want you to kill him. This is a complex story that we're not gonna have time to get into today. If you want to talk about how weird it is that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his child, I'd be more than happy to talk with you about that. It's not common in the Bible. But what you need to see is how crazy this would have seemed to Abraham. 
There's a quote, it was up on the screen when you walked in here. It's from a 17th century Puritan pastor. His name is John Owen. This is what he says. Sometimes through God's providence, there may appear to be inconsistency between God's commands and his promises. Makes a lot of sense for this story. God had promised that through Isaac, all these nations would come. That was his promise. And then his command was Abraham, go kill Isaac. He's made it abundantly clear that no other children are going to get to be the child of promise. Only Isaac. And he says, you need to kill him. Crazy. The next story, again, isn't much of a story. It's more of a listing of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And what we need to know is that they're all on their deathbed in this story. They, they are blessing their children and their grandchildren at this time. And blessings in the Bible aren't, I really hope you have a good life. They're repetition of the promises that these received from God. And so again, from an outside perspective, these are old men who are about to die, who have not received any of the things that God promised them. And they're repeating the promises to their children. These are dreamers who are preparing their children for more disappointment from an outside perspective. This stuff doesn't make sense is what I'm trying to say to you. From an outside perspective, if all you can see are circumstances, if all you can see are the visible things around you, their actions do not make sense. But we have another thing to look at. We have the internal motivation. We have what is unseen. We have the living and abiding word of God. So let's look at that. It comes in two sections. Uh, These stories, two of them focus on the promise of land and two of them focus on the promise of offspring. And so I want to focus first on those promises of offspring. This is how Sarah obeyed. Read with me again verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Faith is not a blind choice. Faith is not just a religious thing. People make decisions based on faith all the time. You do this everywhere in your life. You make a decision about where you're going to send your kid to school. You make a decision about a job that you're going to take or not take, a house that you might buy or sell. And you make those decisions based on the evidence that's in front of you, on present experience and past experience. We don't get to look into the future and make a decision based on what will happen. If only you could look at what your child would be like when they graduated, it would be a lot easier to make school decisions, wouldn't it? If only you could see your job satisfaction 15 years from now, you would be able to decide much easier If only you had known what the market was going to do in East Nashville 10 years ago, buying a house would be a lot easier of a decision to make. But that's not how decisions are made. 
Decisions are made based on evidence and you make predictions. You put your trust in something. Sarah has done that, but what she has not put her trust in is her circumstances. Instead, she looked at the evidence outside and then she looked at the evidence of the faithfulness of God in her life. She looked back over the history of her life, like Jeff talked about a few weeks ago, and saw where God had been faithful, where he had done what he had said he was going to do. And so she considered, she thought about and decided in that moment that God was faithful to his promises. And so she obeyed. The same is true of Abraham. It says, In verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham is met with this dilemma where it seems like, again, to quote John Owen, that the promises of God are inconsistent with the commands of God. And so in that moment, Abraham recalled the power of God that he had seen and he recalled the faithfulness of God that he had seen and he considered them and thought God could raise him from the dead. That's totally within his wheelhouse and that's how he could make this work where the promises of God and the commands of God dovetail rather than conflict. Where would you say in your life it seems like the promises of God and the commands of God conflict? I'll tell you a promise that I cling to tightly in scripture. It's from John 15. It's when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He's saying a lot of hard things to them. He's telling them how difficult the path ahead is going to be. And then in verse 11, he makes this promise. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He says, this isn't for your despair. This isn't to bring you down. This is to give you joy. This is to bring you ultimate happiness He makes a promise to them that the things that he's saying to them are for their joy. He makes a similar promise in John 10. In verse 10, he says the thief, that's Satan in the context, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Think about some times where God's commands seem to threaten those promises. I'll tell you about one that's come up a lot uh, for me and friendships and acquaintances over the last few years. It's obedience to marriage vows. So the command is to stay together till death do us part. And here I'm not talking about situations of abuse or unfaithfulness. We know what the scriptures say about those. But it's very common for people to get married and then to start to realize something. 
that your spouse surprises you, disappoints you, does things that you never would have thought that they would do. And I can't tell you how many times just in the past few years, I've heard something like, God wouldn't want me to live like this. God wants me to be happy. And so in that moment, there's a conflict. There's a conflict between God's commands. God has said that he wants your joy to be full. Sorry, that's God's promises and God's command to persevere, to obey that vow that you've taken. And so one of them gets dropped. Maybe God isn't really commanding this. That's a big picture scenario. Uh, Divorce is a big thing. But we can think about this in the day-to-day too. Uh, There's another promise that uh, I've held very dear. And it's a promise that Jesus makes, but Paul tells us about it. We don't actually read Jesus saying it. It's in Acts 20, verse 35. And he says, these are the words of our Lord that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And a lot of times we go to money, but that's all encompassing. He's saying that it is more blessed. You are happier is what that word means. You are more filled with joy when you give than when you receive. And I've thought about this several times at 3 a.m., Because at 3 a.m., some of you know this scenario, at 3 a.m., I've woken up and I've heard these words. Mommy, mommy. And it it means I have a need. It's 3 a.m., come in here because I need to talk to you. And it's in that moment that I think it's a lot better to receive than it is to give. I'll just lay here and pretend I don't hear this and I'll let Lauren go deal with this. She is calling for mommy. But that's it. I'm not trusting in the promises of God. God promises that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. That sacrificing myself for the good of someone else is actually better for me. Do you trust in the promises of God even when it seems like his commands don't line up with them? So that's Abraham and Sarah. The next promise is the promise of land. In verses eight to 10, talks about Abraham going to Canaan. And remember, he ends up in Canaan, but he doesn't keep all the land. He doesn't get to possess it. And it gives us a sentence of Abraham's motive for why he continued in faith, even though he didn't get it. This is verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. What the author is doing is he's looking at Abraham's lack. He's looking at the fact that he does not have what he thought he was going to have and he's watching him continue in faith, not in despair, but trusting God and hoping in God. And what he's reasoning is Abraham was waiting on something else. Abraham is looking past the here and now And he is actually looking for something that isn't earthly. He's looking for a city. He's living in tents with no foundation and he's waiting on a city whose foundation is built by God. 
The same thing is said in verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged, because they wandered around in tents, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. They're not talking about Ur, where Abraham came from. It's a different homeland. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Again, these men and women died in faith, not having received the promises. Here, particularly the promise of land. And what the author says is not a small theme in the Bible, but it's one that we don't talk about very much. Paul says in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven, not here on earth. That's where our true home is, where God dwells, not in the zip code that we live. In 1 Peter 1.4, which we preached through last year, Peter said, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, much better than the inheritance Abraham had in Ur. And where is it? It is kept in heaven for you. All that you possess, all that you own, all that you hope for and long for is with Christ in heaven. That's the positive side. The flip side of these statements is our relationship to the world. Verse 13 says that one of the reasons that these men and women died in faith is that they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That they didn't belong. That this wasn't their home. The Apostle Peter throughout 1 Peter calls us sojourners and exiles in this world. And if you remember, Jesus in John 17 tells us that we are to be in the world But don't get it wrong, we're not of this world. This is not our home. That word that's translated acknowledged in verse 13, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Elsewhere in Hebrews, it's translated confessed. It has this idea of corporate confession that they didn't just tell other people, but they reminded themselves again and again that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Can you imagine if every week we came in here and we got to the part of the service where we had our corporate confession and we said, we believe in God, the Father Almighty. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. And we believe that we are strangers and exiles on the earth. And that our citizenship isn't here, but it's in heaven. It's a little bit harder for us. I'm speaking in general terms here, in generalities, but we're pretty comfortable. We don't live in tents. We live in 
nice homes that have foundations that we've put a little bit of money in and some care into. And so the hope that these people had, that they were able to take affliction and hardship and persevere through it and trust God is a hope that looks beyond this life. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If our hope is only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Is your hope in the things of this life? Are all your thoughts wrapped up in things that are gonna happen in a few weeks or a few years or even 60 years? Or are you thinking about the fact that you are going to live forever? Are you thinking about the fact that how your investments pay off and when you die is not the most important thing? But the fact that all that you own and all that you possess, your inheritance is kept undefiled and unperishing for you in heaven. How might that change what we put our hope in and what brings us despair in this life? What a hope for those who are in affliction. For those who have diseases or hardships that they know are not going away in this life. Brother or sister, have hope that that disease or hardship will end and it will look like a speck on the radar when you look back from eternity. Our hope is that Christ has raised from the dead. We have hope beyond this life because Jesus came and lived with affliction and lived in poverty and lived where everyone looking in says that's not going well for him. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That is the hope that we have. Jesus is the reason that we can have hope beyond this life. And rather than ending with a proclamation, I want to end with a question. And I've already asked it, but I want it to sit with us. Where are you missing that hope? Because you're only seeing your circumstances. Do you have eyes for the invisible promises of God. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word teaches us even when we don't wanna be taught. Thank you that your word makes us, makes me uncomfortable. Lord, thank you that it doesn't just rep reprove us, but it also encourages us. I pray that we would know the hope that is set before us. We would know what Christ has for us at the end of the hardness of life. And I pray that it would give us action and it would give us love and it would give us diligence and obedience and joy in the present life. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would reveal these things to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.